morning. Welcome to Barah Ministries, an intimate local Christian church with a worldwide impact. My name is Pastor Rory Clark. Thanks for listening to this Bible lesson. And by the way, if you don't, listen to the announcements because there's always stuff there that you need to know. Well, you may be wondering some things about Barah Ministries. One might be, who is the God we worship? One might be, what is our source of truth? And another might be, who is our enemy? Well, isn't it great that the Lord is willing to keep on sending messages to you about his person, his truth, and his enemy? Romans chapter 10, verse 17 says this, Faith comes from hearing, and hearing comes by the word of Christ, of the Christ, the Jewish Messiah. So if you want to get to know the Lord, you have to do that by hearing and when you hear the word of God, it will increase your faith. And it's no, pre- uh, no problem for me to keep on reminding you over and over again who God is. God the Father helps us here through the power of God the Holy Spirit. And he gives us the gift of faith. And by investing our faith in the Lord and in the study of the word of God, we are edified. We continue to hear over and over and over again who God is how he talks to us, and all the things we need to know about our adversary. Well, who is the God we worship? We worship a triune Godhead. There's one God who expresses himself to mankind as three separate, distinct, co-equal, co-infinite, co-eternal persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And if you are engaged in religions, a lot of times they'll tell you that they believe in the Trinity But the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have different attributes. That is not the truth, and that is not Christianity. God the Father is the author of the triune Godhead's plan for all creatures. And the Father warns us that getting to know him will be despised by the world. 1 John 3, verse 1 says this, See how great and unconditional love God the Father has bestowed on us believers in Christ that we would be called children of God. Do you ever wake up thinking about that? Thinking that you're a children of God and being excited about the fact that you're a child of God? Because we are children of God. And for this reason, the world, and that is Satan's cosmic system of thought, does not know us because it did not know him. God the Father encourages his children to pay attention to the world, to to not pay attention to the world. God the Son, the Lord, volunteered to execute God the Father's plan as Jesus the Christ. Is Jesus Christ God? 
Well, he thinks so. John chapter 5, verse 18 says this, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Jesus Christ because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also he was calling God the Father his own father, and he was making himself out to be equal with God. See, the unbelievers knew what he was saying. They knew that he was saying that he was God, and they wanted to kill him because of it. They thought that he was blaspheming when indeed he was telling the truth. So why would Jesus make himself out to be equal with God the Father? Because he is equal with God the Father. There is one and only way, one way to get to heaven. You invest your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, asking him to save you. Jesus is the Christ, the Jewish Messiah, and by believing in him, you instantly have the resurrection life, eternal life in his name. Such blessing comes only from God, and Jesus Christ is God. We worship God the Holy Spirit. He is our mentor and teacher, a guide who is the rudder of the Christian life. He is every bit as much God as God the Father and God the Son. God the Holy Spirit is the divine executive officer of evangelism, spreading the gospel message all over the world. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says this, You believers in Christ will receive enabling power when God the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And come upon you means he's indwelling you. Every believer in Christ is indwelled by God the Holy Spirit as the rudder of their life. And every believer in Christ has God the Father and God the Son indwelling too. That's the unique characteristic of the church age believer. And from God the Holy Spirit's power, you shall be my witnesses. This is Jesus Christ talking. You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, which is the toughest place to be a witness because you can get killed up in there, amen? <laughs> in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Come on in. Well, yeah, but what about the little children in Africa? What about the little children in the, in the middle of Africa? To the remotest parts of the earth. That's what it says. So, what about China? Even China. Even Russia. Even Prague. Even Czechoslovakia. Germany. All over the place. Well, what is our source of truth as Christians? We can develop a deep, intimate, and personal relationship with the entire Godhead through the study of the Word of God, the Bible. And it's exactly what the Berean believers did. Acts chapter 17, verses 10 and 11 say this, The brethren, and the brethren are believers in Christ, the brethren, immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. Why? Because Christianity was under pressure in the first century. And when they arrived in Berea, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Paul was a Jew, and he always went to the Jews first when he preached. Acts 17, 11. Now, these Berean believers in Christ were more noble-minded than the believers in Thessalonica because they received the word of God being taught by Paul with great eagerness, and they also examined the scripture daily to see whether these things Paul was saying was so. That's what you need to do with your pastors. Your pastors can tell you anything, but you need to be able to examine by comparing what they're saying to the Bible to see if what they're saying is so. And that's why I provide a written text of my, uh, of my lessons so that you can go find out if what I'm saying is so. It's on audio, it's on video, 
and it's on uh, paper, so you can go and see if it's so. Now, the question for you is, uh, do you do what the Bereans did? Daily study of the Word of God is essential for intimacy with God. Well, who is our enemy? As Christians, we have an enemy. God has an enemy, Satan, whom God made the ruler of this world for a finite period of time. And he is the enemy of believers in Christ as well. Satan is always using his influence to infiltrate our souls. Do you let him in? You know, one of the, one of the things that's true for Christians today is they not only let him in, but they pretend like he doesn't even exist. And he's in without them knowing that he's in. Because most Christians don't think Satan exists. And that's absolute nonsense. But they think that he doesn't exist because they don't study the Bible that says he exists and tells everything that he uses as strategy. He presents ways for us to exclude God from our lives. He promises to meet our needs. What do you need? What do you need? You need a radio? You need a, a, a earphones? What do you need? He's always opening his coat to meet our needs. Makes a bunch of promises and never keeps them because he is the great deceiver. His promises are empty. His strategy is bait and switch. He promises one thing and then switches to something that's not good for you. He promises everything and gives us nothing. In Job chapter 1, verses 9 to 11, Satan is quite irritated with God. And he suggests that believers in Christ don't really care about the Lord. Here's what he says. Satan said to the Lord, does Job respect God for nothing? Job 1.10. Have you not made a hedge of protection about him and his house and all that he has on every side? Have you blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land? Job 1.11, but put forth your hand and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. Well, if you read Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2, the Lord allowed Satan to, to visit a series of maladies on Job and Job did not curse the Lord to his face. Now, you would think for a learning unit that people would say, oh, that Satan would say, oh, okay, well, I was wrong. No, he never admits he's wrong, ever. Satan asserts that we only worship the Lord because he blesses us, and that is absolutely false. What a liar. Reject his lies and get the truth from the Lord and not from your enemy. Well, today's Bible lesson, are you better than other people? Are you better than other people? When we make judgments about other people, we are inferring that we're better than other people. So as we transition from Romans chapter 1 to Romans chapter 2, the Lord provides a few stories that help us understand the depth of our depravity. We may want to think so, but we are not better than other people. In Acts chapter 10, verses 34 and 35, a reminder from the Apostle Peter, who says this, opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. Peter was a Jew, and at the time when uh, Christianity switched to start uh, evangelizing to the Gentiles, whom the Jews thought were less than human, Peter finally figured out that God thinks just as much of the Gentiles as he does of the Jews, and we are Gentiles. Acts 10.35, 
but in every nation. The man who respects the Lord and does what is right is welcome to the Lord. So why do you think you're better than others? The Lord welcomes every sin-filled resume. Bring yours and see what the Lord is willing to do for you. So we'll get a glimpse of his faithfulness in today's lesson. And as we do every month, we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper. We'll remind ourselves that the Lord forgives us even when we don't forgive ourselves. Well, let's hear some music. The first three chapters of Romans introduce us to our need for forgiveness. These chapters are an indictment of the whole human race. Luckily, the Lord, God the Son, volunteered to take on the challenge of restoring us to a relationship with God that was broken by sin. Psalm 103 verse 12 says that an omniscient God who can't forget anything chooses to overlook our faults. It says as far as the east is from the west, so far has the Lord removed our transgressions from us. He will not remember our sins. Why Matthew West what he will not remember our sins. Why? Matthew West tells us in Psalm, forgiveness. prisoner free. There is no end to what its power can do. So let it go and be amazed by what you see through eyes of grace. 
The prisoner that it really freezes you Forgiveness Forgiveness Oh, forgiveness Forgiveness Show me how to love the unlovable Show me how to reach the unreachable Help me now to do the impossible Let us pray. We're grateful, Heavenly Father, for the privilege of studying your absolute truth, the Word of God. Thank you for overlooking our flaws. Thank you for taking care of us when we were your enemy. Thank you for sending your Son to be a sin substitute for us when he made the sacrifice of his blood to pay for our sins at the cross. Help us to realize that we are no better than anyone else. And help us to treat all members of the human race with the respect with which you treat them. We ask this through the power of God, the Holy Spirit, in Christ's name. Say it with me. Amen. Amen. Today's Bible lesson, are you better than others? Are you better than others? Well, many think so. Remember the sins list at the end of Romans chapter 1, verses 28 to 31. Here's what it looks like. And just as believers did not see fit to acknowledge there is a God any longer, which is atheism, God gave them over to a depraved mind, allowing them to practice those things which are not proper. Romans 1.29 And unbelievers became filled with all unrighteousness, such as wickedness, greed, and evil. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips. Romans chapter 1, verse 30, they are slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, and disobedient to their parents. Romans 1.31, they are without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. We have people like that in our lives right now. We have people who do those very things right now. And since we don't think of people like that necessarily, we're always thinking that, well, how could people be like that? Well, the Bible tells you that there are people like that. There are people who run those sins as a lifestyle, and we can't understand. Yet yesterday I had a little bit of road rage. 
must admit. And uh, luckily, I was on the phone with a friend of mine who was very sensible, and she talked me out of pulling over and uh, having a conversation with a young man in a truck that he would not have liked. Amen? So we all have that in us. And let's not pretend like we don't. But seeing this list of sins, seeing the failings of others, makes some people think that they're superior to other people. So let's take a look at an example. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. This is the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Here's what it says. Jesus, it, Jesus told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. What a perfect description of self-righteousness. People who trust in themselves that they're righteous and view others with contempt. Luke 18.10. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Luke 18.11. And the Pharisee stood and was praying to himself and to anyone else who was listening. And he said, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, like swindlers, those are people who take advantage of other people, like the unjust, like adulterers, or even like this tax collector. And tax collectors were looked at as the worst people in society because they were Jews who were working for the Romans. And that's quite cold. Luke 18, 12. I fast twice a week. The requirement of the law was once a month. So what he was saying is I fast about eight times more than I have to, which makes me even more special. I pay tithes of all I get. Everything he got, he gave 10% of it to the government. In other words, he was working to please God. Luke 18, 13. Now the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven. And instead, he was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. What is a sinner? A sinner is an unbeliever. The tax collector, like the Pharisee, was an unbeliever. And sinners are unbelievers, but believers in Christ are saints. Well, what does the Lord say next? Luke chapter 18, verse 14. I tell you this. The tax collector went to his house justified, that is, saved through God's mercy, but not the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself like the Pharisee will be humbled, and he who humbles himself like the tax collector will be exalted. To be justified is to be declared righteous as a legal declaration by God because the Lord has imputed his righteousness, that is, credited his righteousness to believers at the moment of salvation, once and for all time. Righteousness is the admission ticket to heaven. If you're a believer in Christ, you have a plus R stenciled to your head so you don't need to have all this confusion when you get to the pearly gates. That's what uh, the lies of Satan's kingdom are, that there are these pearly gates. And Peter, the betrayer of the Lord, is sitting there, and he's the one who's going to decide whether you come into heaven or not. That's completely false. That is not how it happens. How it happens actually is, as a believer in Christ, when you close your eyes in this life, you're absent from the body and face-to-face -face with the Lord, 
and he takes you to a place of no more sorrow, no more tears. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come, a place exceeding and abundantly beyond anything you could ever ask or think. So righteousness is the admission ticket to heaven, and the tax collector is saved. But the Pharisee is not because the Pharisee didn't need God's righteousness because he felt like he was righteous on his own for all the things he was doing, tithing and, and fasting and those things. Uh, all fasting will do is make you hungry and all tithing will do is put you in a position where you're being coerced to contribute by people who care nothing about you and care everything about your money. Satan offers two perverted lifestyles then, lasciviousness and legalism. Well, what is lasciviousness? That's a big word, so it may find you scrambling to your dictionary for it, and that's okay. Lasciviousness. It's okay if you learn five-syllable words. So what is lasciviousness? It's the process of subtracting from the perfection of Christianity with rebellion against the perfection of God's commands. It involves taking out the things in Christianity which you don't agree with or with ignoring the things in Christianity you don't like. It's disobedience to the Word of God. It's an insatiable lust for all things that are sinful. It is the eat, drink, and be merry mentality. The people who indulge in the sins listed in Romans chapter 1, verses 21 to 31, are of the lascivious crowd. They let it all hang out, and their sins are obvious. Well, what is the opposite? What is legalism? Legalism is the process of adding to the perfection that is Christianity with an overfocus on rules. Yeah, there's that thing called Christianity, but you gotta, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta, and it turns Christianity into a perversion of self-righteous superiority and into a series of steps no one could ever follow successfully, not even those who propose that they follow the rules. And so legalism is self-righteousness, and self-righteousness is condescending. In Matthew chapter 15, verses 7 and 8, Jesus says about those who are legalistic, you hypocrites. What is a hypocrite? The Greek word hypocrites is someone who's an actor talking from behind a mask. They're beautiful on the outside, but inside full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. You hypocrites, the Lord said, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, Matthew 15, 8. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. Well, the Lord gives us another story which is a perfect illustration of legalism, lasciviousness, and grace. You've heard it before. It's the story of the prodigal son. The cast of characters are the gracious father, the lascivious younger son, and the legalistic older son. Now, the story could easily be renamed for any of the characters, but the focus is the prodigal son. Well, what is a prodigal? A prodigal is someone who spends money or uses resources freely, recklessly, wastefully, and extravagantly. That's a prodigal. So let's learn from the story. Luke chapter 15, verses 11 to 32. And as we learn, we reflect. Luke 15, 11. Jesus said a man had two sons. What an unfortunate thing. 
Luke 15, 12. The younger son said to his father, Father, give me the share of your estate that falls to me. So the father divided his wealth between the two sons. Notice that. The younger son asked for his part of the estate, but the father divided the estate estate between the two sons. So both sons got their part of the estate. estate. Now, what the younger son was saying, in essence, was this. Dad, I wish you were dead. Because typically, estates pass after the father's passing. It was an absolute insult that broke his father's heart. Yet the father gave his son a share of the father's estate. And by the way, this was not unusual practice to give an estate while the giver was alive. But once the, and even once the recipient was given his portion of the estate, he was free to do with the estate what he willed, and he could even sell it. Typically, the older son, though, got twice as much as the younger siblings. Check that out. So the older son in this story got twice as much. So it'll be interesting to see how this unfolds. Luke 15, 13. Well, not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. That's what happens typically, which is why leaving your estate to your children is pretty stupid because they will have it spent within a day or so. So... The prodigal son did what many in that day did. And when, when it talks about going on a, on a journey to a distant country, it was like going from Rome to Corinth or like going from wherever you live to Las Vegas. What happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. That's where people went to party hardy. Luke 15, 14. Now, when the younger son had spent everything, took his whole estate and blew it, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. In other words, he was po. Amen? Amen. Po, P-O. Not poor, po. He couldn't afford a thing. My mom used to say, boy, boy didn't have a pot to pee in and no place to pour it. Amen? <laughs> well, <laughs> well, the younger son found out that the grass is not always greener on the other side of the fence. What does sin do? It promises everything and delivers nothing. It attracts you, it tempts you, it takes your wealth, and it leaves you on the curb with a bill. Luke 15, 15. So the younger son went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and the citizen sent the younger son into the fields to feed the swine. Jewish people did not eat pork nor did they have anything to do with pigs. So this was the most degrading job that a Jewish person could possibly have. Luke 15, 16. The younger son would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating because no one was giving him anything. Why? Because he was pope. Amen? Luke 15, 17. But when the younger son came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread but I'm dying here with hunger. The young son repents. Now, one of the most abused terms in Christianity is he repented of his sins. No, that's not what he did. He, this is a believer. He repented. What did he do? He, tur- he simply changed his mind about his circumstances. He simply chose to no longer engage in the circumstance that he thought was going to be so good, 
and he wanted to go back to the circumstance that he had before. Luke 15, 18. He said, I will get up and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. So what did he want to do? He wanted to confess his sins. Luke 15, 19. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. Yeah, no, I'm sorry, that can't happen. Once a son, always a son. Once a believer in Christ, always a believer in Christ. You can change if you want to. You can think you change, but once God, the Lord, puts you in union with himself through the baptism of the Spirit, you can't get out. I will is free will. And that's what the young man said in Luke 15, 18. I will get up and go to my father. I will is free will. The younger son had the choice to remain in his circumstances or to make a different decision, and he made a different decision. He was thinking, maybe my father is willing to forgive me. Well, is he right? Luke 15, 20. So the younger son got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him felt compassion for him, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now, on the surface of it, you might think that that was just because he was glad to see him. Uh, What a gracious father. But the truth of the matter why he did it was the penalty for this kind of error on the part of a son in the ancient world was that he would be stoned to death. The father was running to his son and embracing him to indicate the father's willingness to die in place of his son if the stoning occurred. Luke 15, 21. By the way, does that sound like anybody willing to take the stoning for you? Does that sound like anybody? <laughs> Luke 15, 21. And the younger son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. The father interrupted the confession. The father rejected the son's desire to work his way back into good graces, to earn forgiveness. So Luke 15, 22, the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a signature ring on his hand and put sandals on his feet. Luke 15, 23, and bring the fatted calf, kill it, and let's eat and celebrate. The ring is a sign of sonship. It is also a welcome back into wealth because it is a signature ring. It is... Uh, it, it allows you to use the wealth of your father. And the robe is a sign of acceptance. The father threw a feast instead of a funeral. Well, why? Luke fifteen twenty four. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And everyone began to celebrate. This is equally the story of the father's grace. This could just as easily, instead of being called the prodigal son, this could have just as easily been called the gracious father. Now, what about the older son, the legalist? Luke 15, 25. Now, the father's older son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and saw dancing. Luke 15, 26. And the older son summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. Luke 15, 27. And the servant said to the older son, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. 
Luke 15, 28. But the older son became angry and was not willing to go into the party. And his father came out and began pleading with him to join the party. Sibling rivalry. The rivalry, the conflict between brothers and sisters. What an awful thing. Amen? Amen? Amen. We got some brothers and sisters up in here. <laughs> Luke 15, 29. But the older son answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I've been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours. Yeah, right. And yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. Luke 15, 30. But when the, this younger son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. True. The father may not have given him a goat for a party, but the father gave the older son a double portion of the estate before he was dead. Amen? This is the ultimate in ingratitude. Why didn't the son organize his own party? He certainly had enough money to do it. Why didn't he organize his own party if he wanted one so badly? The older son did not demonstrate love for his father. He did not demonstrate love for his brother. He thought he was better than everybody else. Well, we're commanded as believers in Christ to love God unconditionally and to love others unconditionally. The legalistic brother did not forgive. He didn't appreciate forgiveness. His father forgave and he didn't like it. He was doing things for his father begrudgingly, by the way, the whole time all the while longing to party. He had no concern for his brother's well-being. In self-righteousness, he thought of himself as better than his brother. He announces the sins of his brother while refusing to see his own sins. Luke chapter 15, verse 31. The father said to the older son, Son, you've always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. Luke 15, 32. But we had to celebrate and rejoice. For this brother of yours was dead, and he has begun to live, and was lost, and has been found. Are you better than others? Are you better than others? You know, when you're always looking at everybody else and saying what their faults are, but forgetting what your own are, are you better than others? You aren't. When we get into Romans chapter 2, then, whereas at the end of chapter 1, Paul has dealt with the lascivious crowd, he's going to deal with the legalistic crowd, because that's what most people like being, legalistic. I am better than you. I haven't done the bad things you've done, so that makes me wonderful. This relative approach to life. Let's hope you don't see yourself in that legalistic mirror. Well, when we return from the break, we'll take the offering, and then we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper. Take a five-minute break. Why you ever chose me has always been a mystery. All my life, I've been told I belong at the end of the line with all the other not quite. We'll all and never get it right But it turns out they're the ones you were looking for all this time Cause I'm just a nobody Trying to tell everybody 
Welcome back. Today's Bible lesson, Are You Better Than Others? Are you better than others? Well, legendary UCLA basketball coach John Wooden once said, you can't have a perfect day without doing something for someone who will never be able to repay you. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 16 reflects this sentiment. It says, do not neglect the doing of good and sharing, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Our God is generous every second of every day. As believers in Christ, we choose to reflect his grace. When you give to Barah Ministries, you make it possible for people all over the world to get spiritual food to feed their spiritual lives free of charge. Thank you for your generosity. Let's welcome up Deacon Denny Goodall with one of his always inspiring offering messages. <coughs> Clap. Good morning. My name is Denny Goodall, and I'm blessed to be a deacon for Barah Ministries. I'm blessed to be a deacon here because I know where our real protection lies. I know it lies in Christ. I know it lies in the cross and in his power. You think about it, windows and doors, they really only keep the, lot, the honest thieves out. I remember we had, as a, as a kid, we had one of those nice French doors that everybody loves with the windows all over it. And we came home one time, and one of them was smashed, and they had bro- broken into our house. And I remember because our TV was swiveled, but it wasn't quite nice enough to steal. I think it was a big lug. <laughs> but they took my Atari, and they took all my change I had been saving, and they took all kinds of things. And I remember thinking, I thought we were safe in here, but not, not against just, you know, not against anybody that's not an honest thief. And you think about uh, seatbelts. <clears throat> you think, hey, I'm good. I'm in this seatbelt. I'm fine. I'm secure no matter what happens. Well, I know a guy who had a seatbelt on and was still tossed from a vehicle. His truck rolled, and he went out the truck. So, I mean, seatbelts do help, help and they save lives, but they're not perfect like God. They're not all-powerful. And you think about police. We had uh, a, a problem at our, our facility this last week where the alarm went off, and it took them over 45 minutes to show up. And not that it was an emergency. We knew it wasn't. But had it been an emergency, something could have gone really wrong in that amount of time. And they're only human. They, they only respond as fast as they can. They're not holy. They're not divine like God. So we know the only place to get our true protection is when we, when we honor Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11. Pick up and put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. The devil is always attacking us, no matter what, in TV and shows, through our friends, through our family. It's always there, so we need to be protected. And the only way to be protected is through Christ and through putting on the full armor. And by supporting this ministry, you're helping others put on that armor. Because remember... A seatbelt's not going to save you from an angry pastor who tries to pull you out of your car on the freeway. <laughs> but God can. So let's remember to give, give to Broad Ministries, and thank you.
welcome back. Let's enjoy the Lord's Supper celebration. Because of the cross, we are fully forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ. Because of the cross, we are fully forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, welcome to the Lord's Supper celebration. As we remember the Lord, let's relax and enjoy memories of the things the Lord has done for us, especially his work on the cross on our behalf. The Lord's Supper gives you a chance to direct your focus to the Lord alone. Concerning the Lord's Supper, our God commands in Luke chapter 22, verse 19, keep on doing this Lord's Supper celebration in remembrance of me. The Lord wants you to think about everything special in your life. And he is the special one in your life. The Lord's Supper is a chance to experience the real meaning of the most important relationship in your life, whether you're a believer in Christ or even more if you're an unbeliever. Yet the Lord's Supper is for the born-again ones, for spiritually alive people who are placed into union with Christ by God the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation through the baptism of the Spirit. God the Holy Spirit turned us into eternal companions of Christ. We don't do this celebration on the move, by the way. It's a chance to sit still and to reflect. What are we reflecting on? Forgiveness. In Luke chapter 23, verse 34, as he hung from the cross, Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Imagine that on a day when he was subjected to torture and humiliation no human has ever faced, he forgave. At the cross, the Lord forgave us for every sin we would ever commit, past, present, and future. And his work is complete. There's so many people who don't believe that his work is complete and that somehow they have to help him to uh, finish the work of forgiveness by confessing their sins or by doing some works that they think are impressive. He doesn't need any help. His work is complete. John chapter 19, verse 30, he said on the cross that his work was complete. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. He said, tetelestai in Greek, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit into the hands of God the Father. His body went into the grave, his spirit went to God the Father, and his soul went into Tartarus to tell the angels in Tartarus and Hades beneath the earth that he had won the strategic victory over Satan in the creator-creature conflict. The graciousness of God forgave the wickedness of man and restored us to the possibility of fellowship with God. It's called reconciliation. What is God at, God's attitude towards sinners and toward those believers in Christ who sin? Let's look at another story. John chapter 8, verses 3 to 11. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. And having set her in the center of the court, John 8, 4, they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Think about it. How tough would it be to catch somebody in adultery in the very act? John chapter 8, verse 5. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone to death such women. Teacher, what then do you say? 
the law actually required that both the man and the woman who committed adultery be stoned to death. According to Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, which says, If there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, or one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. So the Pharisees were up to something. See? Because in this case, the man is never indicted. And he was never indicted because he was likely a Pharisee, and he likely set the woman up. Yet he was never accused. Continuing in John chapter 8, verse 6, the scribes and Pharisees were saying this, by the way, to the person who wrote the Mosaic Law, and to the person who fulfilled the Mosaic Law, they're quoting the Mosaic Law to the person who wrote it. And they were testing him so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger, he wrote on the ground. Now, I have been in that center court where this happened, and the ground is concrete. So Jesus was writing in the concrete just as he wrote the, the Ten Commandments into concrete stones. That should have been a clue. A guy's writing with his finger in con concrete. That should have been a clue to the Pharisees, but they were a little bit dumb. The scribes and Pharisees were hypocrites. They were accusing others while exonerating themselves. John 8, 7. But when they persisted in asking Jesus, he straightened up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. John 8.8. 8. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. John 8.9. And when the scribes and Pharisees heard it, they began to leave one by one, beginning with the older ones, those who were more mature, obviously. And Jesus was left alone with the woman where she was, right in the center of the court. John 8.10. And straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? John 8, 11. She said, No one, Lord. She's a believer in Christ. He is her Lord. And Jesus said, I don't condemn you either. Go, and from now on, sin no more. The law reveals sin. Romans chapter 5, verse 20 says this, The law came in alongside sin so that law-breaking would increase. Parents, if you give rules, guess what's going to happen? They're going to break them. Give guidelines, give standards, not rules. You give a rule, they'll break them. Don't touch that Snickers bar in the refrigerator. That Snickers bar will be gone in five minutes, amen? And then hands will be cut off for touching the Snickers bar, amen? And that is still illegal. So the law came in alongside sin that's so that law-breaking would increase. That's exactly what the law did. The law taught people that they couldn't follow it and therefore needed a Savior. But where law-breaking increased, God's grace abounded all the more. Jesus Christ paid for sin at the cross. It is his forgiveness that we remember today. What does the Lord have to say about sin? What does it mean to forgive? Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25. I, the Lord, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. If the Lord doesn't remember your sins, why do you? Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. 
Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. The Lord purifies us from sin. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 says this, In union with Christ, we believers have redemption through his blood. We are purchased from slavery to sin. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Daniel chapter 9, verse 9 says this, To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. Yet Hebrews chapter 10, verse 17 says, And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Why? Why? Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. For God the Father rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.14, in union with whom we believers in Christ have redemption, which is the forgiveness of sins. Psalm 103, verses 10 to 12. The Lord has not dealt with us according to, it, to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Psalm 103.11, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who respect him. Psalm 103.12, And as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Matthew chapter 26, verse 28, For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, that if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanses us, believers in Christ, from all sin. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, And according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. So for all those who think that confessing their sins does something, it is not shedding of blood, and therefore it does not do a single thing. David says in Psalm 32, verses 1 to 7, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Psalm 32, 2. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. The Lord does not credit our sins to our account, and who, in whose spirit there is no deceit. Psalm 32, 3. And when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. That's guilt. Psalm 32, 4. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. That's what happens when we feel guilty. We're drained. Psalm 32, 5. I acknowledge my sin to you. And my iniquity I did not hide. Well, you can't hide your iniquity from an omnipresent God. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Psalm 32, 6. Therefore, let everyone who is godly, and that's all believers in Christ, pray to you in a time when you may be found. And surely in a flood of great waters they will not reach him. Psalm 32, 7. You are my hiding place. You persevere, you preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. Forgiveness. If the Lord forgives you for all your sins, 
Why can't you forgive yourself once and for all time? Why do you keep bringing up your sins as if they're not paid for? Like the prodigal son, when we as believers in Christ find ourselves entangled in sin, we simply change our mind about sinning and go back to a Lord who is waiting with open arms to be gracious to us like the gracious father in the story. That's what we remember today. Forgiveness. Once and for all time. Well, let's enjoy the elements. Bread and wine. The Lord gives us these things to remember him. We'll enjoy the elements together in a few moments as we listen to the Lord's Supper song. Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 to 28 tell us the reason the Lord wants us to celebrate this meal together. And while the apostles were eating, Jesus took some bread. And after a blessing, he broke the bread and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is being broken for you. Matthew 26, 27. And when Jesus had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood, the blood of a new covenant, the New Testament, my blood, poured out for whosoever for the forgiveness of sins. So we celebrate to remember. Jesus Christ died as our sin substitute. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead to prove his deity. Jesus Christ loves us unconditionally. Jesus Christ forgives us once and for all time through his work on the cross. Jesus Christ's blood paid for our sins. Jesus Christ will come again to gather us into himself. We celebrate and we are grateful. Enjoy the elements as we listen to Telly Leong, who reminds us that all good gifts, including forgiveness, Come to us directly from God. We plow the field and scatter the good seed on the land, but it is fed and watered by God's almighty hand he sends the snow in winter the warmth to swell the grain the breezes and the sunshine the soft refreshing rain all good gifts around us are set
Well, the closing moments of this lesson could be the 10 most important minutes of your life. You'll be introduced to the good news concerning how you can spend all eternity in heaven when you close your eyes in this life. We want you to know that God wants you. And what he wants for you is that you make the most important decision of your life. Where you spend eternity matters to God because you matter to God. He wants you to be saved. In John chapter 4, verses 13 and 14, the Lord Jesus Christ is talking to a woman at a well, a Samaritan woman whom the Jews wanted nothing to do with. And after a brief introduction, the Lord says to the woman, everyone who drinks of the water in this well will thirst again. John 4, 14, but whoever drinks of the water that I, the Lord Jesus Christ, will give him, the water of the word, the gospel message, shall never thirst. So we pick it up at John 4.14, but this is Jesus talking to a woman at a, a well. He said, whoever drinks of the water that I, the Lord Jesus Christ, will give him, the water of the word, the gospel message, shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to the resurrection life, eternal life. It is the Lord's will for you to live with him in heaven forever when you close your eyes in this life. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 say this, This is what is good and acceptable in the sight of the God who is our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who desires all men to be saved, and who desires for all men to come to the knowledge of the truth. Unfortunately, most people think religion shows the way to be saved. Well, is religion the truth? Billions of people in the world think so believing religion and its rituals are the ticket to heaven. So they embrace religious beliefs that tell them how to live, but the religions never tell them how to have a personal relationship with the Lord. Religions propose that if you don't do everything their God expects, that he'll be disappointed. And regardless of your best efforts to follow religious rituals, which you can't and don't do, even if you do all of them, the religion does not guarantee that you'll get to heaven. Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. A relationship guaranteed to save you. The Bible tells you how to get to heaven when you close your eyes in this life. It's as simple as a nine-word conversation with God the Father like the one in Luke chapter 23, verses 42 and 43. A thief being crucified next to Jesus, was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. <coughs> Luke 23:43. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in eternity. 
A nine-word conversation with God can get you to heaven. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Or if you prefer, a couple of five-word conversations with God the Father. Father, I believe in Christ. Or as a man said to Jesus when he was on the earth, I believe, help my unbelief. Believe. Simply take God's word for it, for what it takes to be saved. And that is the moment of eternal life for you. Acts chapter 16, verse 31 says, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved by God, you, and everyone in your household who also believes. Who is this God who saves you? The Apostle Paul describes the Lord Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. I, Paul, delivered to you believers in Christ as of primary importance the gospel message I also received from God, that it was Jesus Christ who died for our sins according to the Old Testament scriptures, 1 Corinthians 15, 4, and he was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day according to to the Old Testament scriptures. If you reject the relationship offer of the Lord Jesus Christ, he will honor your rejection. Matthew chapter 13, verses 49 and 50 say this, so it will be at the end of the age. The elect angels will come forth and take out the wicked, which is a description of unbelievers, from among the righteous, believers in Christ. Matthew 13, 50. And the elect angels will throw the wicked into the furnace of fire, the lake of fire. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. On the other hand, once the Lord saves you, no matter how hard you try, you cannot lose your salvation. John chapter 10 verse 28 says, I, the Lord Jesus Christ, give eternal life to believers in Christ, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Anyone who says you can lose your salvation is lying to you. So follow the advice and accept the invitation of John chapter 3, verse 36. He who believes in the Son has the resurrection life right at that moment. But he who does not obey the command to believe in the Son will not see the resurrection life. Instead, the wrath of God, the lake of fire, abides on him. It is not religion that gets you to heaven. It's a relationship with the one and only Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Have that conversation with God the Father right now, and you will be saved. All right, well, let's close with music. All of us could use forgiveness practice. The Apostle Peter asked the Lord about forgiveness in Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 and 22. Peter came and said to Jesus, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Peter was being really generous because the Mosaic law said to forgive three times. Matthew 18, 22, and Jesus said to Peter, I don't say up to seven times, but I say up to 70 times seven. Well, June Murphy helps us reflect on forgiveness in her song, We're Forgiven. Yes, we all still sin 
But God sees perfection when he looks within. Christ finished his work for you and me. He died and rose to make us free. No need to beg for forgiveness. The price for sins has been paid. No need to beg for forgiveness. Christ bore our guilt and shame. Forgiveness, we're forgiven, forgiven. God's not surprised by what we do, His unconditional love. Is tried and true. Our Lord drank from his cup. God has nothing, nothing against us. No need to beg for forgiveness. The Forgiven, no need to beg. 
That's right. So how many times do you say, oh, forgive me, God, forgive me, God. You're already forgiven. The way God operates is he does things once and for all time. We're forgiven. Let us pray. Almighty God and Father, thank you for helping us learn how to forgive as you do, totally, once and for all time. Help us to shed our grudges And to remember that the only way to have control in a forgiveness situation is to forgive. Because it's something that we have control over. We ask this through the power of God, the Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, say it with me. Amen. Amen. So, discussion, uh, discussing the lesson in prayer circle. Immediately following this lesson, join us live or on Zoom. Uh, got biblical questions, ask the pastor. Pastor at BarahMinistries.com. I'm waiting for the first one of those to come through. Or maybe the third. Keep on studying the Word of God daily. Thanks for coming, thanks for watching, and thanks for listening.